Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. If you're like most developers, you probably like writing documentation even less than reading it. There is a lot more to writing good, solid documentation than most people consider, and that includes your boss, your project manager, and even yourself. In this episode, we're going to discuss the types of documentation you need to develop, as well as some of the pitfalls that many organizations encounter when documenting their systems. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, it turns out I got strep throat. (laughs) Yeah, so I'm recording with strep throat, and I, I've had a few sips of scotch. They were painful, although they became less painful with more sips. <laughs> so uh, that's that's the working way that I'm dealing with it. Obviously, I've got an antibiotic too. But yeah, hey, you know, at least it's not COVID throat, right? Yeah, it's just like, oh, come on, right in the middle of all this junk. <sighs> yeah. So yeah, I just I just kind of feel really run down. We weren't sure we were going to be able to record two episodes tonight, so I'm pleased that we are going to be able to. Um, so yeah, that's the the main thing right now is just getting through this recording and then going to bed. Mm-hmm. How about you? Well, I am uh, feeling the pains of the post-COVID world. My check engine light came on, so I went to Advanced Auto Parts. Yeah, I'm calling them out by name because uh, it's kind of ridiculous. And they're not allowed to go out and plug in that reader into my car to tell me what's wrong with it. Yet, none of their employees were wearing masks or gloves. So just let that sink in. It's like, you you can't go help people, but you don't really care about your employees and protecting your customers either. Yeah, there's so much strange stuff going on where it's like, did you people take a biology class like ever? Yeah. Like you, you know about the germ theory of disease. Like, can we start like, at the level of like Pasteur's understanding and do your policies make, you know, I mean, yeah, I've just seen some weird stuff like people wearing gloves and, you know, they're handling other people's credit cards and handling produce and they never change the gloves. Yeah. And there's a line with like 30 people in it and you're like, <laughs> what, what are you doing? No, I mean, and I've, I've seen some places doing it really well where they will, you know, take your credit card with like a paper towel and they'll wipe it off before they hand it back to you. Yeah. You know, they're doing they're doing things right. I mean, you know, they're they're protecting against people not washing their hands and stuff. I did find a uh, a thing of hand sanitizer that I had in you remember that that big like you could fit a case of beer in it lunchbox cooler I have. Yeah. So there's a a thing of hand sanitizer attached to that because I used to take it on the bike and like, you know, ride out somewhere, have a picnic or something. And so I found that and I put that in my car for like, you know, going and pumping gas, stuff like that. But yeah, no, it was just, it was just like so ridiculous. I actually ended up calling the company and like their, their service line. I'm like, look, what is going on with this? And the the guy's like, well, when, when all this started, we, we made a company policy to not, to not do that but we go by the local policy for the masks for employees. I'm like, really? Like, do you guys, you guys don't really understand. Like I get your mechanics, but like 
nobody at your company understands how this works at all. Yeah. And, and it makes you wonder, like, is this, I, I mean, I don't know that it makes you wonder, but it makes you realize that like anything you talk about on computer security, like it's going through the same filter this is. True. And that's, that's scary. True. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I, I don't want to make fun of them too much, but it's, it's like, yeah, if you're getting these kind of results, when you tell somebody, hey, don't click on that email, like, what are they actually hearing? Click on that email. Yeah. More than likely. Or don't click on it, just forward it. Oh, yeah. To everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. yeah. So, anyway. No. So, in, in better news, I got a new tattoo. Woohoo. If you follow me on social media, you've already seen it. Uh, Amanda and I had our friend Alicia, the artist whose work I used in my talk on my journey into development, design us tattoos based on our favorite scriptures. So they're kind of like church related tattoos. But um, we scheduled the appointment uh, for the 6th of May, way back before the COVID stuff even started just because the tattoo artist is very popular. So we had to schedule out in advance. They've been closed for the last few months and they opened back up on the sixth. So like we were the first people he worked on. That was kind of cool. Unfortunately, we weren't able to stay for the other's tattoo because um, they had a no visitors policy. Completely understand that, respect it. But we still got to keep our appointment, which is awesome. We both have fresh tattoos. It's really awesome. They look amazing. Very colorful. I don't know if I've told you guys this, but uh, I've decided I'm doing a color arm and a black and white arm. I just think it's cool. I don't know. It's it's a cheesy thing that I like. But uh, yeah, so I, I got one for my for my color arm. So. All that said, we're uh, we're about to get into some qualities of a team player in book club. This week, we are looking at the fourth quality, communication. And a quote from the book, the team is many voices with a single heart. In this chapter... Maxwell starts with a story about the real-life team from the movie Remember the Titans. He tells how the coach integrated the team by making them communicate with one another. A team doesn't exist without communication. All you get without it is a group of individuals. Maybe they're working towards the same goals, maybe not. Maxwell then goes on to give five rules for improving effective team communication. Don't let them isolate themselves or group off within the team. Make it easy for teammates to communicate with each other. If two teammates have any sort of disagreement, do not let 24 hours pass without addressing it. Give special attention to particularly difficult relationships and make sure all important communication is in writing and documented. He also provides three tips for improving your own communication. Be candid, be quick, and be inclusive. Who's talking to us this week? Well, uh, nobody. Uh, We still have our comments and water bottles thing on hold, partially because of the whole supply problem surrounding all the COVID fun, partially because we want to kind of think about 
you know, is this what we need to continue doing or do we need to do something else? We'd love to hear from you guys if you have some suggestions. The other thing is, is we've not been getting a whole lot of uh, unique comments on the site or on social media. Most of it's you know, been from people that already have water bottles. Um, and we also had to shut down comments for a while on the website. I can't remember if they're up or not due to some spam. I believe I turned those back on. If not, send us an email to neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com and let us know that they're not up and I will get on that. Yes. Please tell us the state of Schrodinger's comment system. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because we don't know. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Like, we both have a lot going on and, you know, we get our episodes out there. Our priority with this is to create good content and distribute that content. The other bits are as we are able to with the other things going on in our lives. But our priority here is to get you guys good episodes out there. All that said, when we do start this back up, if you guys would like your very own complete developer water bottle or whatever we decide to do, if someone gives us a, a suggestion that we're like, hey, that's that's really cool, we'll go with that. So whatever we would decide to do, leave us a review in iTunes, comment on the website, any of our social media. We're still posting all our episodes to Facebook. Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. And you know what, guys? I posted pictures of my tattoo to my personal Insta, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm going to put it on the podcast so that you guys can see it. It'll come out several weeks before this episode. But if you go back to our Instagram for the podcast, you'll be able to see it. Honestly, are we still on Tumblr? I really need to check that and remove it if we're not, because I don't think we've posted on there in like a long time. Is anyone still on Tumblr? I don't hear about it anymore. I don't know that I've ever been on Tumblr. <laughs> to be 100% honest, uh, yeah, dismissed that particular boat. Yeah, so I think I think Tumblr may be going the way of Google+, Plus, uh, unless they do something to, to pick it back up, because I don't know anybody that still like talks about it or anything. Right now, the conversations are around whether or not you should have TikTok because of security risks. So, and that's your own choice. Yeah. You can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Your advertisement could be here. If you like the show and you want to advertise, send us an email to adverts at completedeveloperpodcast.com. We have short-term, long-term, and other sponsorship opportunities. Reach out to us and let us help you reach the people who you are serving. It's tricky to get developers to write and maintain good documentation. Uh, in fact, I would argue that it's well nigh impossible. Uh, frequently, documentation ends up with huge gaps in it, especially in the you know the content, but also just in terms of being able to get around that content. Uh, it tends to be woefully out of date, contradicts itself, or is completely impossible to navigate in the first place. Or if you want all three, you go to msdn.microsoft.com. You can see... <laughs> what those things look like when they breed together. Uh, Like writing code, putting together a useful set of documentation is not a natural talent, nor is it apparently a commonplace one, but it is an acquired skill, usually built over long periods of time. Most of the time, the way you learn this stuff is either by screwing up or by observing when other people screw up or screwing up together. So I just want to say this right now uh, before we get into the episode. uh, I have been rewriting 
a a big chunk of the um I told you guys about the the background application, like this background service I wrote, like the cross platform one. It didn't have an issue. It did exactly what they asked it to do. It's just they asked for the wrong thing, apparently. That happens. Sometimes you think you know what you want, and turns out that's not what you wanted, or you want something slightly different when you know that it can be done. So uh, I'm having to rewrite a pretty big chunk of that based around how it's handling errors. And oh my goodness, the documentation around that, because now all the docs that I wrote for it are wrong. So yeah, updating documentation. I had to set aside an entire day just to do that. But uh, like your code base, your documentation often has to be maintained. (laughs) Occasionally has to be refactored and needs to be annotated well so that both you and your users can navigate it effectively. Further, you'll have to make sure that your approach to documentation works well with a variety of use cases, plays nicely with the software development lifecycle, and provides methods of feedback that help you make it better. In this episode, we're going to discuss some things you should be thinking about when your boss tells you to write documentation. Because that statement is equivalent to them generically saying write a program, you're going to have to start thinking and asking a lot of questions. In fact, the genesis of this episode was a conversation I had with my boss about documentation stuff because I'm theoretically a technical writer having written two books, which never really occurred to me before. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, like it's strange. I was like looking at it, I'm like, huh, I guess, I guess I kind of am, weirdly. It just didn't didn't click. But there is a lot of stuff you have to think about, and I realized that I had had some stuff to offer here, so I'm you know putting this out there. Uh, we're going to start by talking about some basic things that you should realize when you are developing a documentation system, and you know how those pieces are going to have to fit together with your development process. So first off, some reasonable base assumptions you need to make. Auto-generated documentation is almost useless except for a few narrow cases like object models those kind of things yeah i i like to use it with crud apps um it it tends to be like when you're not doing a whole lot of data manipulation in the api and it is mostly object models and it's just like passing stuff back and forth between a database then yeah it it can be all right also i like to do like with visual studio you can do the the three slash summary yeah, the XML comments. We use those constantly. Yeah. I don't know how to do this. I haven't figured out how to do it with .NET Core yet. I just haven't. It hasn't been a thing. But with the .NET framework, you can actually generate documentation from that yeah. and generate uh, a help page from it too. Yeah. It's just really limited. A lot of times developers will, you go, oh, write documentation. And they're like, oh, here's a code generator that generates documentation. And it's like, dude you know code generators generate crap code and human language is you know is more messed up than coding languages are as far as like being able to get a get a point across like so you know a code generator is not going to work based on your own experience but you're suggesting it it doesn't mean it has no value it's just like you know a hammer is a tool but you can't build an entire house with one without a whole lot of suffering 
So I know I've talked about this. It's been a while since I've talked about this particular person. He's been gone for years. But uh, I worked this one guy. He was, uh, I think I, I called him the uh, the mid-level senior. Yeah. Like he was that, that senior developer who was really skill-wise the expert more beginner. Yeah. Well, no, not ex- he wasn't an expert beginner. It wasn't that he did a lot of stuff. It's just that his, he was he was a solid mid-level developer. Uh, it's just that he'd been a mid-level developer. He was the done the same thing for 10 years in a row. Yeah. Got really good at it. He was a good mid-level developer, but he'd been been a mid-level so long, he thought he was a senior. He like appeared to be a senior until you got into like the real stuff. Like you looked into his code, but I do remember one thing he said was I don't write documentation. I document my code. And he literally spent more time writing XML documentation in his code than he did writing code. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's one of the traps, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we use XML documentation heavily. Like we can't build without it. If it's a public method, it has to be on there. And that makes sense. Yeah. And you know, I initially was kind of mixed on it, but I, the discipline has for the most part kind of started to sink in and I actually caught myself doing it on my own code. And so I'm like, crap, they were right. <laughs> so yeah, I do, I put it on, um, so with, with the stuff I write, all of my public stuff gets an XML comment, mainly because I used to generate documentations from that, and it was a good starting point. Yeah. We'll get into that in a little bit as far as like where you use this. Yeah. But we're getting kind of the, the initial premises. Uh, premises? Premises. The initial thoughts we had. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get like, crap, how do you pluralize that? You know, like I've been dealing with like Russian pluralization too. So it's like really screwing up my English in a bad way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so the next premise is that outdated documentation is actually worse than useless. It's worse mm-hmm. than no documentation because it's yeah. a lie. So if you don't have a way to enforce that your documentation matches your stuff, you know, you're, you're just kind of up a creek and you're not helping your users out. You're, you're, you're causing harm. Oh yeah. And especially if you don't know that it's outdated, that's a big thing. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking of not knowing, uh, documentation that can't be navigated won't be used. Uh, users are not going to, they're not going to expend extra effort to try to find out whether something is in your documentation versus just sending an email to your support team. That's not a thing. Yeah. Just get over that. It's going to be what it is. Of course, I will say this. I have a, I have a friend who was telling me about um, getting calls from the support team, like that she is no longer a member of. She's like moved on to a, a more DBA kind of role. I think she actually is a DBA, but um, anyway, she, <laughs> she was saying how they, would call her and she's like, have you looked back at the conversations we had previously? Like the text, like chats we've had because that's been solved and they just wouldn't look back at it. Yeah. So like there's, there is that issue on both sides basically. Um, and then the last one is having no feedback loop in your documentation is like having no error reporting. Right. So like if your technical writing team produces docs and there's no way for a user to go, yo dog, 
this document doesn't tell me how to do anything or you like you missed half of it because I mean, crap, we do this with our outlines, right? Like, you know, you type a sentence out and then you just completely forget the predicate and just leave it hanging. Um, I did that. Oh, that's never happened. Yeah. That happened like four points ago. Yeah, no, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> yeah. I, I typed it in now, so it's fixed, but you know, like this happens to technical writers and you, you don't have a feedback mechanism. You're never going to know this. So the next thing, um, now that we've talked about some like base assumptions, is you, or I guess really the first thing after getting through these base assumptions is you have to consider your audience. And there's a lot of different audiences. Yeah. And you're probably serving more than one yeah. at the same time. Um, some companies try to do everything in the same doc <laughs> for all the people. Yeah, um, and that. I'm just going to tell you that's it's like one size fits all is always one size fits small. Or it's a tent. <laughs> you know, like it just, it's not going to work. Let's, let's talk about a few of these audiences that you may or may not have considered. Uh, the first and most obvious one is that other developers inside your organization need documentation to figure out how pieces of the system work. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they call you. Yeah. And honestly, this is what most of what I write uh, because I do work mostly on our like enterprise level, like, the APIs that other developers are going to be calling from their applications. So this is the primary audience that I work with. Uh, The second group is management. Management needs documentation so that they can explain things to their management and for planning purposes. Otherwise, they call you. Oh my goodness, you guys remember last week when I said I had been in meetings for an entire week? It was management. My management trying to talk to their management and then pulling me into the meeting to explain things. So just saying. You can basically cut out an hour of documentation and your reward for that is three hours of meetings. <laughs> yes, that's so true. <laughs> yeah, I would I, I would actually do, put a different constant multiplier on that one. But uh, yeah, so, so here's the thing. We used to do weekly status reports and I continue to do them even after they were no longer required until I was specifically told to stop sending those in. And then it was about about three, maybe four months later when I started getting pulled into meetings that I really didn't need to be in that a status report could have handled. And it's got, it like progressively got worse until last week. Uh, well, I guess it was two weeks ago now um, when that happened. And it was just like, whoa. So, um, so now I'm sending in status reports again. Just saying. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know it, what was what was the old uh, coding phrase? You know, a uh, was it a three weeks worth of work can save an hour of planning? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I believe that. It's kind of like that. It's just it's like, dude, you know, like this is basic safety equipment for you, you as a developer, so that you don't have to deal with the suits. Just um, another audience is people looking to buy your software need documentation to determine whether it meets their needs. You probably, if you have a sufficiently advanced product, you probably don't want the marketing team doing that unless they are sufficiently advanced themselves. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't want sales writing this because they will. And they'll put stuff in there that you will have to support. Yeah. Like, again, it all comes back to your, your documentation strategy is either a crap funnel or it's a crap umbrella. Mm-hmm. Either it keeps the crap from landing on you or it puts it right on top of your head. Mm-hmm. And those are your two options. 
This is not a, there's no, there's not really a gradient here. Like it's one or the other and you'll know real fast. So the, the next one is that uh, your support staff need documentation so they can troubleshoot common issues. And this is like, like I said, my primary thing is for other developers inside the organization. This is my secondary. Yeah. Like support staff. And I, I try to make it, I've actually, I have a friend who's one of the advanced, he may be a lead now on our support team. And I talk to him all the time because we were on a team together a while back. And I'm like, hey, does this make sense to you? Like if if you got a call about it, would would you be able to do this if I'm writing something up and I'm like trying to help them out? So yeah, I mean, it's, it's really good to know people on your support staff who you can call and be like, hey, does this make sense? But then it, it works the other way because then they can call you and be like, hey, I don't understand what this means. So it's like a, a give and take relationship there. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing too with the support team is sometimes you'll end up in a situation where the support staff uh, constantly pings you even though you wrote docs. If you wrote the docs, you have proof that, hey, like they should be going here. Now, that doesn't necessarily incriminate the support person, right? It's like, hey, they may just be completely overloaded. And, but it means that, hey, the developers are not at fault here. So now you can kind of deal with that situation. That's what I was talking about with my friend who uh, who moved out of support. She's like, hey, there's documentation for this. Here's where to look it up. And then like said that multiple times to the point of getting a hold of a manager and being like, hey, I've told this person how to solve the same problem three or four times. They may need some new training. They may need training on how to do it. <laughs> they might need a boot. <laughs> boot to the head. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, sometimes, sometimes boot man. to the head is the most honest communication method out there. Um, <laughs> another audience is your QA. Your QA group needs documentation to make sure that the software continues to meet specifications as expected by the user. So the user is going to look at the docs. QA needs to look at the docs and go, "Hey, does this match what we're actually seeing?" That's a QA thing that needs to happen. I've, I've had conversations with QA where it was like, they said, Hey, it, do, it doesn't do this. I'm like, that's not in the specs. That's not in the docs that it's not supposed to do that. Well, my favorite is when it's in the, uh, when it's not in the specs, but it is in the docs <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it does do that. And you broke it and you didn't know that it did that. <laughs> that's my favorite. <laughs> now my, my frustration is when it's like, they expect it to work as when QA, this is like, QA versus development when QA expects it to do a certain thing that it was never intended to do. And you're like, if you look at the specs, that's not there. If you look at the docs, it doesn't do that. It does this other thing. And they're like, well, don't you think it should do this? I'm like, I'm not in charge of should. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't matter what I think it should do. I built what I was asked to build. I think it should pick winning lottery numbers for me so I don't have to answer these kind of questions. (laughs) 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 Why are you here? I didn't hire you. I like that. That's good. That's good. Um, Another very important one is your actual users need documentation because they're using your software. Imagine that. Users using your software. (laughs) Yeah, and this is the one that uh, most people think of, right? Like this is the default. And it, you notice there's a list that goes all the way to L. Mm-hmm. And this is like F. F. Yeah. Yeah, I can read, bro. Uh, <laughs> really? <sorry>. I'm surprised. <laughs> well, it helps with the writing. Um, <laughs> you know, because otherwise you'd really, you know, you can't edit, obviously. So anyway, 
I've seen your editing. Yeah, that's why you get an editor. Um, we'll just leave that where that is. So another one, if your documentation's online, it also has to be built with Google in mind. Because Google, turns out, they're reading your docs. Mm -hmm. You know, they're indexing all this stuff because when somebody types in Google, how do I handle this crap problem with this crap software? It goes to crapsoftware.com, finds your docs. You need that. Uh, Another one is people who are looking to integrate with your software need documentation to figure out the best way to integrate with your software and what value and integration might provide to their company. Facebook. Yeah. If you want, uh, if you want somebody that just is like the punji pit of APIs, that Facebook is definitely right on up there. Uh, yeah, we won't even like. I don't. I don't. I don't, even, I don't want to start that rant because <laughs> like they they hurt me in 2012 and I still feel it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I still have, you weren't there, man. Uh, so. Potential business partners or buyers of your company, like these are people that are buying up your whole company. One of the things they're going to look at is online documentation. Like that's part of their due diligence to go, okay, is this software a pile of crap or is it reasonably well organized? They're going to look at the docs and they make that determination. Mm-hmm. You're potentially writing something that your boss's boss's boss may be reading. Yeah. Here. So, you know, like if you get acquired, like this is a big deal and people don't ever think about this. Another is uh, tech support at other companies may need to read your docs as well, especially if they're helping their own users troubleshoot. Oh my goodness, I have a friend who was telling me about this one one issue that uh, she's having where her company has a client who is doing something with a, a, a single sign-on kind of situation where they're having trouble passing the credentials on because of a third party that her company is using. And so she's like, and I can't get like their technical support doesn't like they won't work with you. Cause you're not the client. Yeah. Yeah. Their, their docs are terrible and they won't work with us and they have to get on a call. She's like, I've been working on this for months and I have to get on a call with all three people. And like one of them's in India. So it's like, finding a time when we can all get on a call is really hard. Like it's five 30 in the morning and yeah, it and payment providers are some of the worst for this. Like if you write white label software that has to integrate with a payment provider, uh, yeah, <laughs> you're actually, you're a wee bit better off dealing with Facebook. Uh, <laughs> like, I can't say that in a whole lot of context, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, like me saying, you know, you're better off dealing with Facebook is like, you're, better off like putting a Wolverine in your underwear. Like it's just, there's not a lot of situations that that's the better choice. Um, (laughs) Sorry. I mean, just hate to be blunt. So here's another one. Your own salespeople may need the documentation so that they can answer sales questions. That's a resource that they're probably going to have access to. And if they don't have access to it, they're going to blow up your phone and they're going to want an answer immediately because a lot of money rides on it. It doesn't matter what you're working on. Or they're just going to make stuff up if they're not very (laughs) good isn't the right word. Morally good? (laughs) Well, I don't know that it's necessarily a moral thing. I think it's more of a, well, surely they can do it. Our guys are sharp. Yeah, there is that too. I didn't think about that. Right. And that's, you know, and it doesn't matter whether that's true or not because that's what they're going to tell you. Yeah. Um, So you might as well just live with it and understand that if you don't write good docs, this happens to you. 
Um, it's just like, hey, I, I don't understand, you know, I don't turn off the voltage at the street um, and I'm doing electrical wiring. Well, eventually I'm going to be a crispy critter. So finally, we have people looking to get hired at your company because they may want your documentation so they can see if they would be a good fit. Yeah. Or go, hey, this is kind of weird. I noticed this, you know, digging in your docs. Um, you know, there's people that will do that and they can be some of the best people you can hire. If that stuff isn't available for them to do the research, you have no idea what you're dealing with. So yeah, it like that that's actually pretty valuable. So next, you need to consider your medium or your media because the way you deal with content is going to be different. First off, hyperlink text is very useful uh, for kind of a structured digging through documentation. But it can be really annoying when trying to explain best practices or show something visually. Right. So like understanding an object model. Okay, what does this property do? Okay, that's there. Going, how does this design pattern work? That's a narrative. It's not a hyperlinked mm-hmm. sequence of docs. Now, it may, be, it may have hyperlinks, but that's not the primary thing. Yeah. It's the narrative. Mm-hmm. You might also have a situation where you legitimately have printed manuals. Um, that is still a thing sometimes. Uh, some clients are not in environments where connecting to the internet is a good option, a good idea, or where if it fails, they need to have something right there in front of them. Um, now, that's fading a lot um, because most people are like, no, we totally want it digital. I don't want you to kill another tree. But those kind of clients are still out there. Well, I mean, the other thing, too, is like you could still do digital without being online. Yeah. But like you said, there are still those like, honestly, if I'm, if I'm reading, I prefer, um, like I'll read an article, but if I'm reading something long, I, I want that physical copy. Like I even get my textbooks that way. Yeah. And I, and I'll open up a book and like, and like look at the Mm -hmm. screen, you know, switch between the two and like whatever I'm working with on screen never covers up my docs. The computer deciding to reboot because windows is idiotic. Doesn't lose my place in the PDF. Right. Like somebody has to physically move the book and close it for me to lose my place. So, yeah, there's just there's places where this matters. Um, Another good medium is stuff like API documentation with samples. So like your swagger docs plus some other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Other developers have to have this work with your systems and it needs to be built in a way that's not just, oh, here's the you know, here's the endpoint and here's what you pass at it. You know, kind of it's like it needs to possibly even be interactive. Let them test stuff out. I haven't thought about interactive. I most of my API docs I don't I have not ever thought about being interactive with it. That's a really cool idea. Uh, what I have done though is write out like going back to the narrative that you said uh, with the hyperlink text is like write out here's the pathway, here's what's happening yeah. when you pass it in. It's like all right, you can kind of follow along and see what else it's connecting to when you do that. Yeah, but like you think about like a Swagger API, you can have a button on there that says, you know, authorize and takes mm-hmm. them to a, a thing where they sign in and now, you know, their token is there and they can play with that API with their own stuff. I haven't done a lot of stuff with Swagger. I really like, I like the idea of it, but I just haven't had a chance to to mess around with it. If you're looking at a good API, Stripe is an excellent one. Um, like they're, they're the polar opposite. Like if Stripe collided with Facebook, there would be an explosion and nothing. <laughs> Because they're just like their antimatter for Facebook. Um, they're really, really well done. 
you might also need video documentation uh, for common operations in your software. Uh, this keeps you from having to train every single future user out there. That, that can that can make some sense. Uh, personally, in certain environments, yeah, in certain environments. Personally, I hate video tutorials. Well, yeah, you're a developer. I hate them too. Like I, I like I'll open a video on YouTube and I don't play it. I drag the scroll bar <laughs> to get to where I'm going to look at the thing. But there's people like you know, for instance, if you're writing software for the mass consumer market. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes you know, sense. Video is good. Uh, anything where you're doing any kind of imaging type stuff where it's like, hey, this is really hard to show this way. Video is a good way to do it. Oh, no. If I'm doing like IoT stuff, especially back um, when I had a lot of extra time. <laughs> That's been a while. And, yeah, it has been a while. And I, I did play around with the, the IoT stuff. My stuff is still in boxes uh, since I've moved. But uh, back when I did have that time, uh, I did like those video tutorials because they would show you, like you could watch what they were doing. But so far as like any type of coding tutorial or API thing, I want written out. You can have a video, that's fine. I'm not going to watch it. I want actual written out because that's what I'm going to. I'm going for, all right, let me scan through this, find the information I need and move on. Yeah, unless it's like an actual like tutorial tutorial where it's like follow along with me as I do this thing and you... Follow yeah. the example and you're typing along. Like I've been doing that with a Gatsby tutorial. If it, Another thing, if you're learning a new IDE. Yeah, that's real helpful. Video is really good because you can watch where they scroll. I've, I've done that. Um, I had to use NetBeans for something in school and I did that with that. So, no. Yeah. I mean, I've been following uh, Clast. Yeah. Which is Clast, you know, with, th- with three S's. Mm-hmm. Um, going through his uh, uh, Gatsby JS tutorial and that's, been great cool um so it there's a there's definitely a place for it it's it's weird for developers though mm-hmm. um another type of help which we used to do all the time in windows forms and those you know desktop apps is built-in help so you, you know you click on a button and you know you can or like you can tab over to it and you hit f1 and you get a pop-up this is here's what this thing does yep that was like rolled into the app like we used to do this and we don't do it on the web i remember that I, there's still some places where you can find that like I think we don't, yeah, and you can find it on the web too. I, I think we don't do it as much because a lot of web development is also like, like web mobile development, and it's harder to do that on mobile. Yeah, but it does need to be there if you can, because it's right there with the screen that they're looking at, and they go, "Okay, what is this?" And they get an answer for that instead of, "Oh, it's the screen that you know has a title of this thing, and let me go find it in your wiki." And oh, by the way, the title changed last week, and I haven't updated my software. That's kind of um, kind of sucks. So you will probably need multiple formats in multiple languages. You know, the world is not monolinguistic and never has been. You're going to have to keep documentation in sync for any supported languages. And you need to write in a way that is both clear and not awkward, which can be difficult for some people, some podcasters even. Yeah. Like that last sentence? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> oh, well, yeah. hey, dude, I do the same thing. No, uh, I wrote that sentence that way on purpose to make you squirm. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I, I feel the love. I feel it's the a love. service I provide. Yeah, I'll just say automated translation will not help you here. Um, that's no. one thing you, um, and I'll, I'll tell you this, like automated translation will burn you, um, especially if you're not careful. Um, mm-hmm. A few weeks ago, I actually tricked Yandex 
and I didn't do it on purpose, into translating the city of Kiev into the city of Moscow. I remember when you did that. And that's across a border. Yeah. Like the Ukrainians do not like that sort of thing and neither do the Russians. Um, it's when a non-printing character made it in there and it did weird things. So like, you're going to actually have to have a person do this. So next, you need to consider your development cycle. Documentation has to be kept up with release feature sets. Yeah. Um, because if you release a new feature and there are no docs for it, users will start using it incorrectly and then they completely carpet bomb your support, which then means your developers get nailed. And your documentation may have to support multiple features. Yeah, or multiple uh, feature sets or multiple yeah. uh, configurations of those mm -hmm. features. And it has to do it concurrently and you're probably going to want to not have to rewrite every doc for every combination. Now, an interesting one that uh, I hadn't thought about until reading through this episode is you may need to control documentation with the same feature flags you use in your app, especially if you're doing something like A-B testing. You don't want the group that doesn't have the features to see the documentation for it because then they're going to think something's broken. Or there may be a security reason. Hey, we audit all these things and you're hiring you know, employees that you don't particularly trust and you're the manager and you need to see that doc, but the employees don't. Yeah. For whatever reason. Now, I would I would say that that's probably sketch if you're in that situation anyway, but it is a thing in some industries. You're also going to uh, have to have some way of knowing what has changed in your app so that the documentation can be updated. And this is going to have to happen as part of your development process. Hopefully that doesn't mean a person going through the doc in the app looking at it every time. Unless you're on like a six-month release cycle, that isn't going to work. It's going to be horribly inefficient even if it does work. Yeah. Your documentation team is going to have to write the documentation fairly early in your process or they're going to be the bottleneck. Yeah, um, I could tell you from writing uh, two books in the last year that you can write a lot in a reasonable period of time. You cannot write a lot in a very short period of time and be effective. Yeah. So my second book, I think it took me from August until I want to say early January to write it. And it was 268 pages. That's an absolute death march. That's probably a full-time job for somebody, realistically, considering the amount of time I put in. Mm -hmm. Oh, I remember, man. You were um you were at, you were behaving like you were on a death march. It was uh it was fun. Yeah. It was, it was extremely and it was rough. what was what was interesting is I was in school taking a like halfway through that, my school like decided, hey, we're gonna suddenly get more difficult in the middle of the semester and start adding stuff that wasn't there at the beginning. Yeah. And so like we were both just really on edge and stressed and it was, it was an adventurous time. Yeah. And, and this, this by the way is why your developers can't really do this, right? Cause if they're trying to get the software out by a due date, it's like, well, if the software is out by the due date and you don't have docs, you need to know what happens. Yeah. Because if it's critical that the docs are there, then they're going to be a bottleneck if they can't start early. Mm -hmm. They can't be rushed anymore than a developer can. So next thing to consider is maintenance and reorganization. Yeah. Written works have to be reorganized and edited over time, just like your code. Yeah. It is a living document. It is not static. Yeah. Like code, when documentation is being reorganized, there are points at which you can't ship, especially like a big refactor, essentially, uh, because things are horribly broken. Uh, 
And the interesting thing about this is when you're doing this in documentation, it often does not coincide with when you're doing that same thing in the code. In fact, it probably shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause you only get the space to have that kind of freedom in the documentation writing when the code is very, relatively stable. <laughs> you don't want to be. Yeah. Realistically, you, you don't need both of them being unstable at the same time. Right. And so you're going to have some schedule pressure because of that, um, that you probably haven't thought about. Uh, you're also going to periodically have to adjust wording in your docs, uh, both to match what marketing says and what your application does. Uh, marketing is going to change their tune. Guess what? You're making a publicly consumed document that is the face of your company. Marketing is now involved. If you are making major structural changes to your documentation while in active development, you have to have like a gate or feature flags. Like you have to have some way to control these changes. Yeah. And you're going to have to do them in parallel. Yeah. Essentially and switch over at some point. And nobody thinks about this. And then they get stuck and like, I've released a new app or I'm about to release a new app and have six months worth of documentation to do for a thing that's coming out tomorrow. It ain't coming out tomorrow. One of those two statements. <laughs> yeah. It's either the thing before the word, but is true or the thing after is true. Not both. Your code and your documentation are probably going to have to be tied together in some manner uh, for this to be efficient with a development team. Uh, you're going to spend a lot of time trying to keep documentation in sync with mm-hmm. code anyway. Any automation helps. You will never get this fully yeah. automated. This means that developers can screw up the documentation process or get blamed for it, which means a lot of office politics will be in the mix. And this can be a big pain. Uh, personally, I've not seen, uh, I've not worked in an environment where you had a separate documentation team or someone who did technical docs. It was developers did their own technical docs. And then like, it was like the development team did their own technical docs. Yeah. And then the marketing or whoever took those and did the user documentation from that or the BA along with marketing took that and did the user documentation, which meant a lot of training of your BAs. Now I have had the privilege of working with some amazing business analysts who may not have known the intricacies of code, but really put the effort in. I have to have to give a shout out to my BAs I've worked with because they have really put the work into learning enough of the technical side to write some good docs. I'll give them that. I mean, that's that's something that not everyone can say. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of times your your documentation people are not even under the same organizational structure as your developers. Like they're in the marketing department or they report to mm-hmm. some other group. They're, they, they report to support, right? And so now you yeah. have cross-departmental headbutting going on while you're trying to work. Uh, it's real easy to end up there. Or when you have like different, if you're in the public sector, your developers are working for one agency and your documentation writers, like the ones who are writing docs for users are working for a completely different agency. Yeah. I've seen that. That's, um, that's when you make friends cross departmentally. Yeah. That's when you better. Yeah. Like I've, I've been taken out to lunch by a couple of people just so that we could become friends. 
so that we could we could work together better. And it, yeah, it's it's way better to be a bridge than a than a wall there. Yes, exactly. This is where developers, guys, we can really make a huge difference in an organization just by being friendly. And you can have power. <laughs> That's the other uh, the other side of it. Now, speaking of power or speaking of uh, differentials, sometimes the changes in code that are really tiny uh, result in huge changes in documentation and vice versa. People mm-hmm. estimating the scope of code changes will not have a clue how much documentation has to change as a result of a code change, and they're not thinking about it. The converse is also true. The inverse. The opposite is also true. However you want to put that. No. Can't you tell I'm a wordsmith? I don't wear converse, but yeah. Yeah. So uh, your writing workflow is important. This is one thing I learned, you know, again, with all the writing I've had to do. Just like with code, you've got to have a peer review slash pull request slash whatever process. Uh, and that's in addition to editing. A lot of editors will look at the document that they're looking at, and they won't look at how it fits into the larger scope. Um, this is especially true when it's intertangled and there's links going back and forth and stuff. You, you could have both. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. I have, um, I've actually had Amanda look over some of the show notes and stuff that I've written recently uh, f- because she's great. Like she'd make a great editor, like book editor for like grammar errors, spelling errors, things like that. But she doesn't know the technical side. Yeah. So like an an editor helps with that. They typically don't handle like the larger structure of the work, things like searchability, link structures, uh, some of the earlier things we mentioned in this episode, like how you set up your documentation. An editor is not going to look at that. An editor is going to look at, you know, does this this line, does this sentence make sense? Is that word spelled correctly? Yeah. You use the wrong gerund. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff, which is important for clarity, but it's it's a little different than a structural thing. So you do have to have this additional process and nobody ever thinks about this. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone writing documentation is going to have to have as much structure as somebody writing code. Uh, the tool I use for a lot of my writing is Scrivener, and it's basically an IDE for writing. It really is. I've used it. It's not. It could be more extensible, and it's got some issues with its word output, but... um. It's not really my style. Like I'm more for me, I write in something else and I trend and I bring it over to Scrivener because Scrivener is good for moving things around. It's great for structure. It's not that great in my opinion for writing. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Um, I have some tricks I've done to it to make it not terrible for me. Yeah. You've probably learned a lot since the last time I tried to work with it. Yeah. I I mean, it beats the daylights out of writing in word. Um, but I don't write in word. I, I would rather use a, Straight up, just like text. I'd rather use Vim as opposed to Word. I'll, I'll use Visual Studio Code and write a text. Yes. I've thought about doing a workflow entirely in that instead of Scrivener for the next thing. I write all of my my talks in VS Code, and then I translate them to PowerPoint. And if I were writing a book, I would write it in VS Code and then translate it to Scrivener. Yeah, I've thought about doing that and and having Node in the mix and having like a build script. Actually, that's not a bad idea. And using like Pandoc or something to you know, generate a, a PDF. I'm like, dude, I could totally do that. Um, there's tools out there that'll do it. Um, and I can, we could put a link to some of those in the show notes at some point, but um, yeah, we got to get on. That's, not a, that's actually a really good idea. Yeah, man. 
anyone writing documentation will require as much structure as anyone writing code. You're also going to have to try and overcome Conway's law, just like developers, because it will reflect in your work as well. Right. And Conway's law is the uh, sense that your application structure will reveal the communication structure of the organization that was used to create your application. This will also be true of your, you know, any documentation you write um, because it's an artifact of that same thing. So you're going to have to deal with that, whether you like that or not. Source control and change control are going to be really important and they're going to need to be tied to the developer and QA, uh, source control and change control. However, you have to do this while keeping things separate enough that each group can make its own decisions. And that's going to vary a lot based on your organization, but that has to be there. Um, especially if you have multiple versions in the wild at the same time. Yeah. So the next thing you need to consider is mixing generated documentation with written documentation. We mentioned this back at the beginning of the episode, and this is something that I have done. Uh, I like to start with generated documentation and go from there. To some degree, you can generate some parts of your documentation. For the most part, it tends to be low value, uh, if you do generate documentation, even just for developers, you have to clean it up. What I like to do is it, for me, it gives me a good structure. Like generating the documentation, it sets out the, all right, here's the methods, here's like the, here's the objects and stuff. And then I can go in and go, all right, here's the workflow within that method. Here's the things I want you to know within that method. Yeah, or tag something so that you can say, here's where the, the non-generated piece goes. Yeah, yeah, right. How, how it ties to this object. You know, something like that works okay, but you, you got to come up with some other thing other than just raw generation. A lot of developers don't seem to really understand this, and they loudly talk about how you need to generate this. This will never work. Most people reading documentation do not give a wet fart in a hurricane about how your system does anything for them. They don't want to know. Nobody wants to open you know, the, the box to see how the magic smoke flows through the system and makes the electronics work. Nobody cares. They're trying to fit your system into theirs. Consequently, your system doesn't matter except as a cog in a larger system. Yeah. Intermixing lots of documentation into systems that developers maintain means that either developers are going to be responsible for those documents not a good idea, or that those documents will decline rapidly in quality over time, which is an even worse idea. And by the way, that's a binary or, and both conditions are true. If you do mix some generated documentation with manually produced documentation, you're going to need to review the manually produced documents anytime the automated ones change. You got to have some kind of trigger mechanism, like a hash, something that says, hey, this is associated with these manually generated things. Go look at them, Goober, because they're probably changed. So the next thing to consider is that user and organization-specific documentation. Uh, you may need to segment your documentation based on what permissions a user has. Like Will talked about this earlier with kind of a shady organization where a manager ha can see things that other people can't within the documentation. Um, you may need to do the same per organization. Um, now this is this is a big thing. If your software is configurable or has components that are purchased separately, like feature flags, or they can't be sold in some countries, yeah. Or if you're A/B testing a new yeah. feature and you want you don't want 
the documentation for the new feature to go out to the people who aren't getting it because that'll be really confusing and your phone lines will be overloaded and you'll have to have a message saying that, you know, there's a long wait time. Yeah, and the idea of documentation is to not have that problem. Yes, exactly. Unfortunately, your marketing team is going to also be involved in writing this documentation as well um, because it's a really good place to upsell clients on actually buying the new features. Yeah, that's true. And so they're going to want to be involved and they are going to be able to advocate their way in. You might as well accept it and invite them in from the beginning. Also, you're going to have to test your documentation from the perspective of a variety of users to make sure that the information that needs to be out there for each use case is actually there and working. I I said earlier, I have a friend on the support team who I will contact and be like, hey, does this make sense to you? Do you understand what I'm saying here when I say this? Like, can you follow this? I don't do it very often, uh, but I do contact him and it has helped me a lot because there's been a few times where I was like, dude, I don't get what you're saying at all. Yeah. Because if you if you got if your head's down in something, like your ability to express that thing in English is inversely proportional to the amount of time that you spent looking at it. True. Very true. Also, the way marketing segments the product and the way the development segments the product are going to play into the structure of your documentation. Like the way marketing talks about and breaks down a product is not going to be the same way that development does. Yeah. And you're going to have to be the bridge between those things, meaning that you get to be the conductor for all of the spare electrical current, <laughs> essentially. Because <Yes. laughs> pretty much. Yeah. It's, um, it, it will be. This is a really good spot to end up being very political if you're not prepared for it. So be careful. Uh, there are security concerns for documentation, and you know we're I know we're running out of time, but we'll hurry. If your documentation is public, it can and will be misused. Um, if it's not public and you need authentication to get into it, you just expanded your security surface area. So pick which head of the hydra you want to get bitten by. Be really careful to redact anything from your documentation that has usernames, passwords, sensitive IDs, even URLs, names of clients, any PII, personally identifiable information. Or corporately identifiable. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be super duper careful about that because you do not want to expose your client list. Like if you've got some big client and nobody knows that they're using your software, they, there may be a contractual reason for that. So yeah, you just got to be super duper careful. Um, another potential user role that nobody considers uh, when writing docs, but this is a user role that exists, and that is the user role of a hostile user conducting industrial espionage and trying to reverse engineer your app, uh, cause security problems, or poach employees, clients, or strategic partners off of you. Those people will be in your system you know, when you write docs and they're publicly exposed or not, they may be also working for one of your clients. You have to assume that that's there and treat this like any other situation where you're giving data to somebody. You need to make sure that it's not something they can damage you with. Another thing you have to think about is you need to be careful about accidental early disclosure of information. If your company is planning some huge move, some huge release, some like really awesome thing that's going to be like, you know, a big surprise, they want that kept quiet. Uh, It's very bad if that leaks out through the documentation, like some huge new feature that they wanted to be this huge announcement 
comes out in the docks and you know the the nerdy guys that yeah yeah i could i could see that like apple being really really picky about that you also have to be really careful if you have uh, a forum type system especially if it is tied into your documentation because users will put bad stuff in there and they can put malicious payloads in there and then all of your users suddenly got exposed yeah you got to have moderators for any type of thing like that yeah so Finally, the secondary considerations. Putting an emphasis on documentation in your organization is going to change the way you do things. Definitely. Yep. Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You are measuring something, you have changed its position. You're measuring where it is. Depending on the type of documentation required, this can often pressure developers to make things more simple than they should be, and it can make design decisions more political than they already are. Right. So you may have a situation like you're doing payment processing and that should be out of band, right? In case it fails, da, 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 you know, like that's mm-hmm. common sense. But the sales guy sees the document that says, well, we do this and we send a thing back to you and says, oh, this shouldn't be this way. It should immediately tell them. And that's getting them involved in something that isn't their business. Um, so you, you've got to be careful about that yeah. or you're going to get cornered politically if you don't have a good plan for it. Because uh, these things happen all at once and you don't see them coming from a political perspective. Good documentation can often help your marketing and sales team a lot, especially if your documentation is publicly accessible. While this is good, it may increase your load and like how much work you have to do a lot faster than you can think. Yeah, like if your competitor really screws up and then somebody's on their forum going, well, this other company that's like half your size has got their act together and all of a sudden a thousand of their users look at your docs and go, yeah, they are better. Let's just switch. That can be okay. It's definitely money, but it's also probably a spike in workload before the money comes in. So do be aware of that. Like this done well, you it, it's, it's a foot gun. You know, if it's pointed in the right place, it's fine. If it's not, not so great. Yeah. You probably will at least see some releases delayed by documentation and training considerations. Just like QA considerations are going to delay releases. It's still better than not having QA. Um, you got to be in that headspace versus, oh, this has slowed us down. You know, it's there for a reason. Now, it is important to know who is in charge of the documentation team. There's a high likelihood of getting political if that's not made clear. Yeah. And in fact, it's, it's almost certain to become political at some scale. So you, you need to be you know, prepared for that. I mean, like just having a QA department gets political too, right? Or just having you know, a, a security department. It's, it's typical corporate stuff. Understand that you're getting in there and deal with it appropriately. Now guys, good documentation is almost a requirement for a serviceable product. Large companies notwithstanding. Your users support marketing and sales staff are going to rightfully expect that either your software is going to have decent documentation that stays up to date or that they can bug you whenever they need you. Basically, if you value your sanity at all, document, document, document. It should be your priority. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I just want to point out, you know, the the overriding theme here in this you know, particular podcast episode is that nothing changes in a modern professional development environment without changing tons of other stuff around it. Don't feel bad when you get surprised by this complexity. 
you can really only plan things with the expectation that there are going to be some unknowns that you don't know that you don't know about and plan accordingly. Uh, there's no other kind of planning that actually works. This is true for testing, is true for documentation, is true for QA, and it is true for development. And it's part of the game we all play. Be at peace with that and learn to play the game. That's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.